Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. Lately, I've been thinking about how long I have been advocating for rejuvenation biotechnology. It is over two decades now, and there is no proven therapeutic yet in the marketplace. Biohackers seem to be getting some good results, but there is nothing yet accepted in the mainstream medical industry. Considering the conservative nature of most large medical institutions, perhaps there never will be, maybe we will have to create the entire industry ourselves from scratch. That seems to be what many advocates are doing, undertaking the arduous task of getting a product to market that reverses some of the damage of aging. In this interview with Dr. Matthew O'Connor of Cyclarity Therapeutics, you will hear more about the long process of investigating, manufacturing, and proving the efficacy of a new drug. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, Dr. Matthew O'Connor, founder of Underdog Therapeutics, which is now Cyclarity Therapeutics. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Justin. And at first, just give us a, a little uh, background of uh, with the name change with the company. Of course, we've talked a couple of times in the past, and uh, perhaps it's a sign of progress or a new focus for the company with the name change. Well, there's no, I want to assure everyone that there's actually no change fundamentally in the company, in our mission, uh, or in, uh, in our approach. It's merely a sign of our maturing into a, uh, not, not much larger, but uh, into a more advanced clinical stage company. And we can get more into that later, but uh, we, we feel like we're not quite the underdogs anymore. So uh, it was time for us to mature into Cyclarity Therapeutics. Great. Well, we might as well jump into the clinical stage now, because the last couple of times you talked, you were doing computational chemistry and just kind of delving into the science of the modified cyclodextrins. And you had some preliminary uh, data. What has happened in the last two years since we spoke? Are you very close to some clinical trials? Are you uh, working in a wet lab yet uh, on cells? Uh, what's, what's the state of the research? Wow, we've actually come so far in the past two years that it'll be difficult to summarize in a few sentences, but I'll give it a try and then we can dive more deeply into anything that you'd like to. What's happened in the past two years is that we've gone past the, the point of testing in you know, simple in vitro systems, a handful of promising drug candidates uh, to picking one uh, lead drug candidate to advance through to more advanced proof of concept in vitro tests, both simple biochemical binding tests up through more uh, sophisticated cell-based tests that are designed to examine how our drug interacts with and can reverse the disease state of cells that are involved in cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis. And now we are well along the path to manufacturing our lead drug. So uh, everything I just uh, uh, summarized was successful. And now we're manufacturing our, our lead drug at kilogram scale. We've just now started the GMP 
uh, which is good manufacturing practice of our drug, which is the quality that you need to, to achieve in order to put drugs into people. So uh, the, uh, the practice large-scale uh, high-quality manufacturing is finished. The, the actual applied manufacturing has begun. And all of the what's called IND enabling or IMPD enabling uh, in vitro and in vivo safety testing is well underway. So those are all of the final prerequisites that need to be finished before we can enter clinical trials middle of next year. Middle of next year. Okay. Some people, uh, you know, were very excited to, when Underdog first started and that the cyclodextrins were already in use and approved, FDA approved for certain uses. Uh, now you call it a drug. Uh, I know that this type of therapeutic or drug, whatever you want to call it, was thought to have an easier time getting approved because it is a common substance that has been approved in the food supply and things like that. Is that still the case? Are you on the timeline you thought you would be on as far as getting it into clinical trials? The basic answer to all of those questions is yes. There's several cyclodextrins that, uh, as you pointed out, are not. So it's a little bit confusing, but there are cyclodextrins for non-drug purposes that are approved as, you know, food supplements, things like that. There are other cyclodextrins that are non-drug cyclodextrins that are approved for use in drugs so that you can mix them with drugs as inactive pharmaceutical ingredients. And then there is one cyclodextrin-based drug that is fully approved for use in, uh, in humans as a drug. And so that's the sort of environment that we're working in. So our drug and ours is a drug, not, it doesn't belong to the, the either of the classes of non-drug uh, cyclodextrins, but it is an actual drug. It is a new composition of matter uh, is the term of art. So it's a, it is a, a fundamentally new molecule that has never existed before built upon cyclodextrin. And it is uh, going to go through the regular regulatory process as if it is a completely new substance. However, because of the precedent and the large amount of safety data that has been generated over basically the past two decades, that's that the fact that others have paved that path for us to follow is making our lives easier in terms of being able to perform some of the same steps and avoid some of the pitfalls that that others have encountered. So we're in a good position to rapidly move our drug through the regulatory process and into people. That was the plan from the beginning. And amazingly, it's worked out really, really well. So regulators are familiar with cyclodextrins, so that you would say makes it easier to get through the regulatory process, you, you would assume. since If it's a completely new novel therapeutic that no one's ever seen, then the safety standards are going to be much more stringent, I would imagine. Well, yes. And that was the, the hope and the, uh, I don't know, the prayer going into our first regulatory meeting. We've had four face-to-face -face regulatory meetings in two different countries so far. And in the very first one, 
I completely overprepared for this question and was sweating bullets over it. And I got a, you know, a question from one of the examiners uh, about the nature of our drug. And I pointed out, I, I very briefly summarized it and pointed out its similarity to one of the existing ones. And uh, she said, okay, I understand that. Uh, thank you very much. And that was the end of that line of questioning. It wasn't the complete end to, you know, the many, many questions uh, and discussions that we had, yeah. but in terms of the precedent, like you were just referring to, yes, that is exactly what oh. we hoped for. And it worked out amazingly well. It's interesting. Very interesting. I'm sure the audience probably is interested in that too. The inside baseball, when you're meeting with a regula- <laughs> regulator, right? If they are yeah. familiar with the therapeutic, if they have a history with it, then they're like, well, I know about that. They'll skip that part. And you might save hours or days of explaining uh, what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between working with something that's novel, like our drug, but something that isn't a completely new kind of matter that the regulators have never seen before. Something, you know, a kind of, uh, nanotechnology that's really cool and really well engineered, et cetera, et cetera. But it's never been in a person, nothing like it has ever been in a person before. That is going to be a very different conversation from something that's similar to something that has been in a person before and I think lowers the, the bar. Sure. Um, I don't want to put words in the regulator's mouth. Uh, I need to be careful of, of how of I course. characterize w- what they say. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm certainly not representing them and I'm, I'm yep. not going to quote them on anything because uh, our, our conversations are confidential. But the, the general gist of things is, uh, is along those lines. Sure. Well, you mentioned uh, that obviously it's a modified cyclodextrin. It's a it's a new composition of matter, basically. But is it similar enough to other cyclodextrins that have been used in medicine and food supply uh, that I'm I'm asking you to speculate? There's a good reason to believe that your new drugs are likely to be safe. Yes. And in fact, that's the way we started was by looking at all of the existing cyclodextrins that had been invented. And we, or, we actually ordered all of the cyclodextrins from the chemical catalog that you could buy and tested all of them to examine their properties of, of binding different molecules, molecules that we wanted to them to bind, molecules that we didn't want our eventual molecules to bind, and then doing some very simple safety testing just in cells in actually in human blood to make sure that we weren't uh, damaging human blood. And from those, that sort of screening procedure, we learned a lot about what makes a cyclodextrin, a given cyclodextrin safe versus what makes one dangerous. So then when we were engineering our new cyclodextrin, we knew what to lean into and what to avoid so that we would have a high probability of creating something that was very safe and, and would follow that path of safe cyclodextrins quickly into, uh, into the clinic. And so far, so good. Our, our plan and our strategies worked out really well. Now, if you can say, this is kind of a technical question and maybe it's, it has to do with company IP, I don't know, but you said you have a lead 
compound, composition of matter, cyclodextrin that you would like to bring into clinical trials next year. How did you decide on that lead drug? Were there several parameters or just specific binding to seven keto cholesterol, the one that bound the best, or were there other considerations? There were three considerations. One was how well did it bind our oxidized cholesterol target the specific species of which you you named uh, is called seven keto cholesterol and we selected for that and against the binding of cholesterol so we wanted something that had high affinity for oxidized cholesterol and relatively low affinity for cholesterol so we wanted a preference for oxidized cholesterol over non-oxidized cholesterol. Secondly, we wanted something that was safe. And it turned out that there was a near perfect correlation between drugs that did no damage to blood and drugs that did a lot of damage to blood. There, There was a great correlation between whether or not they had an affinity for cholesterol. So if you strip too much cholesterol out of blood cells, you break them and that's very dangerous. And so those turned out to be the same, the same criteria, which we hypothesized would be the case. And surprisingly turned out to be a, an extraordinarily good predictor. And then third, it was the practicalities of manufacturing. You know, when we started out making these, we were making prototypes of 100 or a few hundred milligrams, but we knew that someday We're going to need to manufacture kilograms of this stuff. And someday now we're manufacturing kilograms of high quality material of our lead drug. In the future, you know, we will need to manufacture hundreds or maybe even thousands of kilograms of our drug when it goes to market. And so we knew that we needed a process that was scalable in a practical sense that you could make in a way that it would be clean, free of of any dangerous contaminants. And uh, secondly, would be affordable to manufacture at large scale so that, you know, we could afford to deliver it to patients. Yeah. And this is a platform technology that you've mentioned in the past might have some other applications besides just working with cholesterol and removing uh, seven keto cholesterol or other bad forms of cholesterol. Are you still investigating some other potential targets for the cyclodextrins kind of on the back burner now while you focus on the clinical trial? Our focus is on medical applications, direct medical applications for our technology. And so all of the discovery work that we're doing on the side while we are racing our first drug to clinical trials is around improving, making a second generation drug that's even better than our first one, and two, finding other small toxic hydrophobic molecules to target. Now, as you alluded to, that doesn't mean those are the only applications for our our technology, and uh, cyclodextrins are used for all kinds of interesting and weird applications in industry and in food, as you pointed out. And so we're very open to collaborating with other groups who are studying 
you know, how to make super materials out of, out of cyclodextrins or how to use them as delivery vehicles for, for things or how to make super strong materials or, or whatever they're trying to make. If they come across our papers and our patents and want to talk to us and collaborate on a project and then eventually license the technology from us, we'll be very happy to speak with them. But we're stay, staying laser focused on turning our technology into drugs that that can help improve human health, and particularly with a focus on uh, age-related disease, which is our, our roots and our mission. And speaking of that, uh, I know you've been around the world uh, talking to oh, regulators, as you mentioned, but also to some conferences recently. And the audience is very interested in other types of research that is going on. And you probably have talked to many different leading researchers and co different companies around the world. Is there a couple of things, name a couple of things that you've seen recently outside of your purview and outside of uh, Cyclarity that have you excited uh, about rejuvenation biotechnology? Well, I'm super, I'm still super excited about analytics. You know, there's, there's some that are already in clinical trials and there's a lot that a lot of companies, a lot of startups that have analytics or the molecules that, you know, may repress aspects of the detriments, uh, the detrimental effects of senescent cells. Uh, there's kind of a spectrum there now that's become a whole field. And in fact, I saw a talk from a, a portfolio company that uh, that kind of amalgamates uh, regener rejuvenation or regenerative medicine companies. And, it, it, you know, he talked about their senolytic technology and said, you know, started off with saying, well, if you're a portfolio company in this space and you don't have a senolytic in your portfolio, then, uh, then what are you doing? So I, I thought that put it well, is that you know, senolytics, I predict, uh, here's my prediction, are, are going to be that, you know, the first approved senolytic is going to be a, a game changer. So that that's um, my favorite class. And some of your audience might remember my background in mitochondrial biology. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm still excited about a lot of stuff happening there. I'm, I'm looking forward to more and better mitochondrial diagnostics to both diagnose people with inherited mitochondrial disease, but also age-related mitochondrial disorder, and then mitochondrial therapies, therapies that target dysfunctional mitochondria and kill them. So you could call them cytolytics for, for mitochondria, I think could be really cool, uh, although it's early days there. So th those are some of the main technologies that I have on my radar, but there's, there's a whole bunch more uh, well, let me point out one more, uh, which is glucose uh, crosslink breaking drugs. I think age breakers. Um, age breakers. Uh, people thought they were dead because they were too far ahead of their time in the in the early two thousands with LHBM, but they're back. And there's some cool startups working in that space now, and and others looking at other aspects of uh, of the extracellular space, uh, looking at decalcification of the arterial wall, uh, rejuvenation of, of elastin in the extracellular space. So yeah, I, I should stop before, uh, <laughs> be before name too many. for a whole hour on, the, on, sure. on all sure. the cool things that are happening in rejuvenation biology now. Yeah, I guess it's a sign that hopefully uh, things are really accelerating. I've been working on, you know, advocating for a couple of decades, of course, and the progress has been slow, but it seems there are more companies and more money coming in and you're getting funding for Cyclarity, which is wonderful to see. 
Uh, we wish you the best of luck uh, and look forward to that clinical trial coming up next year. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Dr. Matthew O'Connor. It's been a blast. Thanks so much, Justin. I appreciate it. Besides the potential for Cyclarity's rationally designed cyclodextrins to reverse aspects of heart disease, which is a great thing in of itself, we might find out soon more about the nature of aging. Anyone who follows this field knows there's quite the heated discussion about whether aging is programmed or whether it is mainly the accumulation of damage. With Senolytics, Age Breakers, and Cyclarity's cyclodextrins, we will start to get some answers soon. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.